0: Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 37. We should always remember as we read the Word of God that God in His mercy and kindness and goodness and grace has given us an unerringly true written revelation of his self-disclosure. The Bible is supremely about God. It's not first about you, and it's not first about me. It's about who God is and what God has decreed and purposed and determined to do to save a people to the praise of His glory, but ultimately so that His Son will be the firstborn among many brothers. So, Genesis chapter 37, when we read this passage, I would like you to be thinking about this truth, that here and wherever we find ourselves in the Bible, we are in the midst of cosmic conflict. The whole Bible is an escalating unfolding development of that conflict that God himself initiated in the Garden of Eden. When God addresses Satan in the guise of the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, you will strike at his heel, but he will crush your head. And the whole Bible, wherever you are, whether you're in the middle of Leviticus or the Song of Songs or the Minor Prophets, wherever you are, you're in the midst of cosmic conflict, kingdom against kingdom. And that is the foundational truth that undergirds the story of Joseph. Genesis chapter 37. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being seventeen years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. And Joseph dreamed a dream. And he told it to his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said to them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said to him, shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren and said, behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? And his brethren envied him. But his father pondered the saying. And his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send thee unto them. And he said to him, Here am I. And he said to him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren. And well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of the the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, "What "What seekest thou?" And he said, "I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks." And the man said, "They are departed hence." For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they said to one another, behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, let us slay him cast him into some pit, and we will say, some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, lay no hand upon him that he might writ him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. And it came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brethren that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. And they took him, cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread. And they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels, bringing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh." and his brethren were content. Then there passed by Midianite merchants. They drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. And Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. And he rent his clothes, and he returned to his brethren and said, "'The child is not!' And whither shall I go? And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors. They brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. And he knew it. And he said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted, and he said, I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Little did he know. Thus, the father wept for him, and the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. Every one of us here in this building today is involved in a cosmic conflict. Whether you feel that to be the case or not is immaterial. God has established an elemental cosmic conflict at the very heart of humanity. And the whole Bible is an unfolding, escalating exposition of that cosmic conflict. As I said in the introduction, wherever you read in the Bible, you're in the midst of conflict, kingdom against kingdom. That's why Paul can write to the Colossians and bless God that he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness And brought us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Kingdom against kingdom. You are either in the kingdom of darkness, or by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you have been brought out of that kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. That's the subtext of the whole story of Joseph the story of Joseph is not really about Joseph. It's about God pursuing relentlessly his purpose to crush Satan and to make his son the firstborn of many brothers. Let me give you three quotations that will somewhat frame my address this morning. First of all, familiar words from John Flavel. The providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can be read only backwards. You know, Hebrew, you read from right to left. And Flavel is making the simple but obvious point that God's providence is often, most often, bewildering to us, beyond our fathoming. John Murray puts it even more dramatically. He said, God's providence is often a dark, impenetrable abyss. A dark, impenetrable abyss. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways seem to us, as with Job, past finding out. We may think we have a handle on providence, but almost certainly we don't. Many years ago, a friend of mine came to me, and he had been through some series of difficulties in his life, and he, he came one afternoon. I was in my study, and he said, oh, Ian, you know, I need to speak to you. I need to speak to you. And I said, well, please come in and sit down, and tell me what's going on. He said, you know, my life has been in turmoil. I've not knowing which way to turn, what to do, where to go, what not to go, what, what, what not to do. But now everything is clear to me. I said, is it? Oh, he said, yes, I was out a drive with my wife. And we were driving through the countryside, and I could picture it in my mind, not far from my man's. And we took a wrong turn and we drove up this very narrow country lane, and we came to a dead end. And I realized I'd have to reverse the car, and as I began to reverse it, I went into a ditch, and suddenly everything became clear. I said, did it? Oh, yes, he said. The Lord was saying to me, I'd taken a wrong turn. I needed now to retrace my steps and find my way back to where I had gone wrong. And he went on developing this analogy. I listened for some time and I said, brother, God was teaching you one thing. Oh, what was that? You're a bad driver. (laughs) He said, do you think so? I said, you can bank on it. (laughs) He was so sure that he had the inside track on the ways of the Lord. But Murray is right. God's providence is often a dark impenetrable abyss. And yet, here's the third quotation, and yet John Calvin could write, ignorance of providence is the greatest of all miseries, and the knowledge of it the highest happiness. Ignorance of providence is the greatest of all miseries, and the knowledge of it the highest happiness is Calvin disagreeing with, with Murray and Flavel? Far from it. When you read the section of Quoted from the Institutes, Book 1, Section uh, Chapter 17, Section 11, I think, Calvin's point is simply this. Understanding providence is unfathomable to us, but If we are persuaded that the God who ordains all that comes to pass is good and is for us in Christ, we can embrace whatever providence comes our way, knowing that as for God, His ways are perfect. Everything comes down ultimately to your doctrine of God. And by the doctrine of God, I don't simply mean right notions about God. One of the great blessings of reading Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion is that you're reading theology that's married to the experience of the God of grace. Martin Busser, who so influenced Calvin, wrote in his commentary to the Romans that true theology is not theoretical. It is practical. The end of it is to live a godly life. The end of theology is to live a godly life. And what Calvin is saying when he he says ignorance of providence is the greatest of all miseries and the knowledge of it the highest happiness, he is saying to us, Root and anchor your life in God, in the revelation that He has given of Himself, and taste and see that the Lord is good. God's sovereignty in all things and over all things, is an undeniable biblical truth, as we heard so wonderfully last evening. It's one of the most profoundly comforting truths that we come across in the Word of God. But no less, as I said, it's a deeply mysterious and oftentimes perplexing truth. Don't you just love the honesty of the Word of God. You read the book of Psalms, you know when you lose the Psalter in your worship, you ultimately lose Christianity. And one of the blessings of knowing the Psalms and singing the Psalms is that there you are brought into a sphere of authentic biblical religion. How often the psalmists cry out to the Lord. Think of Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long? Four times. Four times. He's expressing his bewilderment with God and with His ways with Him. I find it remarkable that 40% of the Psalms, 59 of the 150, are laments. If we didn't have the Psalms to sing, how could we pour out to God our broken, perplexed hearts? Throughout the scriptures, God's eminent servants express their bewilderment with the Lord. You remember Paul, we heard about this so wonderfully last night, the doxology at the end of Romans 11. That's where theology should always lead you. If your theology doesn't lead you to doxology, you've got your theology all wrong. But what does Paul say in that doxology? He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments. His paths are beyond tracing out. Perhaps he's thinking of the 77th Psalm. Your footprints were there in the sea, but we couldn't see them. He's saying God is inscrutable. He is beyond our fathoming. So, when the Lord reveals to Isaiah His purposes concerning the approaching Babylonian devastation, Isaiah says to the Lord, truly you are a God who hides himself. Martin Luther translates it, Deus absconditus, God has abandoned the scene. It's as if God is nowhere to be seen. Truly you are a God who hides himself. I remember vividly the moment Reading volume two of Herman Bavinck's Reformed Dogmatics. They had just not long been translated into English. I was sitting in the University Library in Cambridge and I was riveted by a statement of Bavinck's. I think it's volume two, page 29. He said, The fundamental truth of the Christian religion is. Now, how would you finish that sentence? The fundamental truth of the Christian religion is the incomprehensibility of God. I just sat there. I don't know how long I sat there, but I sat there for some time, pondering, wondering, and then began to write And the more I thought, the more I thought, how right you are, Professor Bavik. We apprehend the Lord. We can never comprehend Him. Even through the ages of eternity, He will be to us in our glorified creatureliness. The incomprehensible, unfathomable one, which is why every day, if I can use spatial language, why every day will be like a new day as we plumb the immensities and the infinities of Him who is beyond fathoming. Now, why mention this very basic truth? Well, for two reasons. Number one, because it's true. (laughs) Because it's true. Your doctrine of God is the most significant thing about you. The most significant thing about you young men in the front and all of us here today, the most significant thing about us is what we think about God. What you think about God will shape everything you are, Everything you say, everything you do, what you say and what you don't say, what you do and what you don't do, where you go and where you won't go. But secondly, I say this simply as an introduction to remind us that the life of faith is at its purest and highest, marked by puzzlement with God, and His ways. Both our brothers referred last night to the servant songs in Isaiah. One of the most remarkable statements in the whole Bible, and I mean the whole Bible, one of the most remarkable statements is found in Isaiah 49 verse 4, "'But I said I have labored in vain.'" I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. When I'm teaching in my seminary, at some point I will always ask my students, who said that in the Bible? And not one of them, in 20 years of theological teaching, not one of them has got the answer right. Who said I have labored in vain. And I think the English translations are quite prosaic, actually. My life has been a waste of space. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. The God-man said that. And if he couldn't say that, he could never have been our Savior. His humanity would have been of a different order from our humanity. He would have been a superman, not a true man. This is pristine humanity, holy, harmless, undefiled, confronted with fallenness and wickedness and vileness and deception and disappointment. And he's saying, God, your ways are beyond my fathoming. His humanity is not omniscient. This humanity, as we heard again just so movingly last night, was a true humanity. And yet, he goes on, doesn't he, in that verse 4 of Isaiah 49, Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God, in His sanctified, pristine bewilderment with God and His ways. Climaxing in the elemental cry, Ela Ela Lama my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He never let go his trust in God. The believing life, the life of faith in Jesus Christ is a life of struggle often a life of perplexity. I tell myself and my children and anyone who'll listen, avoid like the plague people who tell you that the Christian life can be lived at a higher level. It was not so for the Redeemer of the world. And as it was with Him, so it will be with those who have been united to him. For what is the great ministry of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant? It's to take the template that he first etched into the holy humanity of Christ and overlay that template on the lives idiosyncratically of all who are united to Christ. Calvin calls it the ministry of replication. He he takes that principal pattern of life and death of mortificatio and vivificatio, and he overlays it in our lives idiosyncratically. One day, we will no longer see through a glass darkly. Maybe like my brother Joel, Paul, Anthony, and others, I'm often asked, what do you think's the first thing you'll say? When you open your eyes into that new world. Well, who knows? I mean, who knows? But I would like to think it might be this truly, you did all things well. All things well. Perfect. You see, because the Lord is good. Psalm 119, 68, because he is good, he does good. If God did not do good, he would un-God himself. He doesn't do good because he makes a decision to do good. He does good because he is good. That's why the doctrine of divine simplicity is a truth we need greatly to recover in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ in these days. Well, with that as a somewhat lengthier introduction I anticipated, let's think a little about the life of Joseph. If you were to draw a spiritual graph of Joseph's life, think of a simple graph an XY axis. What would that graph look like? Well, I'll tell you what it wouldn't look like. It wouldn't look like that. It would be essentially parabolic. Joseph is nowhere described in the Bible as a type of Christ, but his life is Christologically typical because his life follows the principal pattern that goes backwards into history as well as forwards into history of the Lord Jesus Christ. His life is a series of deaths and resurrections. And it's that principal, Christological, Christocentric pattern that the Holy Spirit overlays in Joseph's life. So let me look with you at, very simply, this narrative that really covers from 37 and then we jump to 39 through to chapter 50. In five scenes, scene one which we read... Genesis 37, we encounter Joseph as Jacob's darling son. He's the apple of his eye. He's privileged above his brothers. And it's tempting. Hebrew narrative is very beguiling. It's tempting to think we are being told that Joseph is a proud young man exalting himself above his brother's. And Hebrew narrative is very beguiling and very annoying because rarely does Hebrew narrative pause to make moral judgment. It leaves you to join up the dots in the light of the overarching organic nature of redemptive history. It very rarely pauses to say, now are you getting it? That was bad. And that means we're left to deduce from the narrative, from who God is and what God has revealed, whether certain actions are godly or ungodly. For example, Moses killing the Egyptian, was, was that a righteous act or an unrighteous act? Well, the text doesn't tell us. I happen to think it was a righteous act, but you're left with the overarching nature of the organic connectedness of Holy Scripture and from who God is, and from the cosmic conflict that he's initiated in Genesis 3:15, and his ultimate purpose to save a people to the praise of his glory, to come and at times tentatively come to certain judgments. Joseph is not condemned for his pride. And he's not praised for his integrity. Now, you might think, well, well, why is that? Well, I think because the main purpose of the story of Joseph is not Joseph. The story of Joseph is the story of Joseph's God. The Lord God, Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, is the central figure in the drama of redemption. So, Joseph, we're introduced to him, is on the crest of a wave. He's conscious he has a remarkable destiny, a God-ordained destiny, as you see from verse 11 of chapter 37. But his brothers are jealous of him. But his father, did you take note of that, his father, verse 11 observed the saying, literally, more accurately, I think, the father pondered thoughtfully the saying. Now, if someone had asked Joseph that day, what is God doing in your life, Joseph? What do you think Joseph would have said? People might say that to you. What's God doing in your life? I think the best answer is, I haven't the foggiest. But whatever he's doing, he's doing it well, for his glory and for my present and ultimate eternal good. And as someone has said to Joseph, "Now, what's God doing in your life today?" Joseph? Well, well, it, it, it seems to me, it seems to me that God has not forgotten his, his, his promise to Abraham. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. And somehow I I, I seem to have a little part to play in that, but I really don't know. And then you come to scene two. Joseph, I'll just assume that you you roughly know the story. Joseph is, is envied by his brothers. They conspire against him. They sell him into slavery. So from the depths, sorry, from the heights, he's descending into the depths. He's being betrayed. What does that remind you of? He's being betrayed. Joseph is discovering that the life of faith is not even and mechanical, but episodic and horticultural, to use John Owen's language. The life of faith is not even and unhindered and smooth because we're in the midst of cosmic conflict. There is an enemy. An unseen, vicious enemy who is planning, who has methodias, Paul puts it in Ephesians 6 methods, wiles, deceits. If someone asked Joseph, sunk down in the pit, what is God doing in your life today, Joseph? I wonder what Joseph would have said. I haven't a clue, but as for God, Psalm 18, his ways are perfect. And then, scene three, Joseph is sold as a household slave to Potiphar. Kidnap and trauma is being replaced with at least a measure, a modicum of hope. But then, no sooner, is there a modicum of hope, then that's snatched from him. He's lied about uh, by a, a scorned woman. And once again, Joseph finds himself in the depths. He's been in the heights. He's in the depths. He's been raised a bit. Now he's back in the depths. And if someone had asked Joseph on that day, Joseph, what is God doing in your life today? I wonder what Joseph would have said you need to ask god why ask me and then you have seen four after some time in prison fresh hope comes to joseph he interprets the dreams you remember of the king's butler and the king's baker and he says to them remember me when it is well with you Please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews and I also have nothing here that they should put me in the dungeon. You can almost sense Joseph thinking the tide maybe is beginning to turn. And then we read, the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. What a roller coaster of emotions must have engulfed that young man. Dashed hopes, promises that seemed to offer a semblance of light extinguished again. What if someone had asked Joseph on that day? What's God doing in your life today, Joseph? I wonder what he would have said. I have an inkling, no more than that, what he would have said. I don't know. I don't know. But as for God... He does all things well. And then you have the final fifth scene. Finally, in God's sovereign providence and purpose, Joseph is raised from the depths and seated in the heights. There will be no more depths. What does that remind you of? God has hyper-exalted him, given to him the name above every other name. And if someone in that day of elevation asked Joseph, "What is God doing in your life today, Joseph?" I wonder what he' would have said on that day. How are we to understand the Lord's sovereign ways with Joseph? In the light, two things, in the light of the history of redemption? and in the light of Joseph's personal history and experience. Because our personal history and experience is embedded in the grand cosmic design of God's history of redemption. Let me say two things as we draw to a close. First of all, the verse that dominates the whole course of Joseph's life and which interprets for us not just Joseph's personal history, but the whole history of redemption, is Genesis 50, verse 20. When Joseph says to his, to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. And the verb that's used in the Hebrew text has its basic meaning in to weave together a pattern. It's not simply that God ordained it decretally, which He did, and clinically. It's that God gloriously wove together the exigencies of life, the bewilderments of life, the wickednesses of men, God using sin sinlessly for His glory. You meant it for evil but God meant it for good. I wonder if you've ever noticed in that text that Moses does not say that God was with Joseph through all his sufferings, though he clearly was. He tells us something far more profound and ultimately far more glorious. God ordained the whole course of Joseph's life, even his sufferings. That's why the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of the Christian revelation of who God is and what God has purposed for his creation. Can you imagine people looking at this bloodied, bruised, spit-dripping man from Nazareth hanging on a cross, pierced, bloodied, reviled, despised, mocked? Do you think anyone was saying, ah, the wonder of the sovereign providence of God? how gloriously God weaves together the wickednesses of men to further His eternal purposes. Now, Peter could write that. You, with the help of wicked men, have taken, but you did it all according to the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. But that's his theological spirit-inspired reflection on the event. At the time Everything just looked catechismically chaotic and dark. As it was for the Redeemer. My God, my God, why? All the lights had gone out. There wasn't a pinprick in the cosmos. But God was weaving His bright designs And that's why, as I said towards the beginning of the address, your doctrine of God is what will sustain you and keep you through the trials, the troubles, the disappointments, the devastations of life. We need to go back to the cross and embed in our minds and hearts every day of our existence. He spared not His own Son for me. How is it possible He could withhold any good thing from me? The cross, you remember Luther's great statement, crooks probat omnia, the cross is the test of everything. You meant it for evil. Ah, but I purposed it, decreed it, and wove it together for good. But then secondly, a little more personally regarding Joseph, because cosmic redemption does not override the individual. We're not numbers. Our names are written on the heart of our great high priest. And the verse that gives us a window into God's personal dealings with Joseph and that dominates Joseph's response and reaction to the fact and perplexity of God's sovereign ways with him is what we read in chapter 39 verse 9 when Potiphar's wife seeks to seduce Joseph. And you could imagine that the siren voice is saying, Joseph, grab a little bit of life while you can. Your God has left you. Your family have abandoned you. Grab life while you can. Kidnapped, betrayed, sold into slavery. How could I do such a thing and sin against God? I think that's one of the most remarkable statements in the whole Bible. That's faith. That's faith, because Joseph is saying, I'm not my own. God has covenanted to be my God. That's what Moses is expecting us to exegete out of Joseph's words. If I could unpack Joseph's uh, language and sentiments, he would be saying, I'm a covenant man gripped by the grace of Almighty God in His covenant with Abraham. I'm not my own. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. He is often, to my sensibilities, Deus absconditus, the God who's abandoned me. But how could I do such a thing and sin against God? Do this great wickedness and sin against. God had written His commandments in his heart. He's speaking as a man graced by God in the gospel. He's a gospel man, and gospel men refuse, however seductively, the attractions of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let me close with a somewhat lengthy quote from John Calvin's commentary in Romans, chapter 4. I remember when I first read this, I was preparing as a student a Bible study to give to young people not far from Edinburgh. I had, my mother was a Roman Catholic, and when I turned 21, I wasn't long a Christian, I asked her to get me John Calvin's commentaries and Martin Luther's bondage of the will were not having Luther and Calvin in this house. But she was a wonderful mother and she got me Luther and Calvin. And I remember reading, preparing for this Bible study, Calvin's comments on Romans 4 verse 20, Abraham against faith, against hope, believed in hope. And Calvin writes, let us also remember that the condition of us all is the same as that of Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. He promises us immortality. We're surrounded by mortality and corruption. He declares that He accounts us just, but we are covered with sins. He testifies that He is propitious and kind to us, but outward judgments threaten his wrath. What then is to be done? These are great words. We must with closed eyes pass by ourselves and all things connected with us that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. your doctrine of God and your heart embracing of that doctrine will determine the shape and style of your life. You know, the Lord has got two great purposes, a proximate purpose and an ultimate purpose. His proximate purpose is your and my salvation, that we might be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that heaven may be populated by creaturely, analogues of the Son of God. That's his proximate purpose. Salvation's not his ultimate purpose. It's his proximate purpose. God has a more ultimate purpose. Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's ultimate purpose is His Son, the glory of His Son, the exaltation of His Son, to have a renewed heavens and a new earth endlessly marveling at the God-man, the Lamb in the midst of the throne. So our brief, momentary troubles They are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond anything we can imagine. But God's ultimate purpose does not terminate with you or with me. It terminates with His Son. So whatever your circumstances this morning, God to you is a God of all comfort. He will not fail you nor forsake you. It may appear that he has absconded, but he has never absconded. But never, ever forget that his ultimate purpose is to so bless you that his Son will have all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Let us pray. Lord, thou art great and greatly to be praised. There is none like unto you, O Lord, in the heavens above or on the earth beneath. You are great, you are glorious, you are infinite, you are eternal, you are unchangeable in your being, wisdom, power, knowledge, goodness, and truth. You are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, And in Jesus Christ, you are ours through the grace of faith. Lord, we bless you that you love us with an everlasting love, with a love that will never let us go. And we ask you, Lord, to make us what you would have us to be. Make us better than we are. Lord, make us better than we are that our lives might show that we are not our own, that we have been bought with a price, that we are indeed the sons and daughters of the living God, the bride of Jesus Christ, the people over whom you rejoice with loud singing. Forgive our sins, O God, above all our unbelief, and may Jesus Christ have all the glory, and we ask it in his name. Amen.